Hey, St. John, this is Pastor Adam, and we are back for another episode for our uh, virtual book group as we are going through Henry Nowen's uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and with me is Chris Camille. Hi, Chris. Hey there. How are you? Good. How about you? I'm doing well. So we are looking at part two of Nowen's book, which deals with the elder son. Uh, But before we do that, how about a a fun fact? Uh, What is a Bible translation you've been reading from lately? Lately, it's been NIV. I hop around, but that's where I'm at right now. How about you? Nice. Uh, I am working through the new King James. I've never really read any of the King James versions, and so okay. I picked the one that's a little, little friendlier. And a little less thee and thou. Yeah, a little less <laughs> thee and thou. So I'm working through that. Awesome. All right. So uh, part two, Elder Son. This is chapters four, five, and six in Nowen's book. And let's open up to chapter four. And uh, what can we talk about first? I guess as, as we're turning to that in our books, I liked how um, Nowen ended part one in a very ominous way. He talks about the other four bystanders in the painting, mm-hmm. which I didn't notice there were four for a long time, which is kind of how my cover was printed. And maybe folks will see it with theirs. Uh, but if you look more closely, you'll see there's a number of figures there. And the one standing off to the right side, his his face is, I think that's the one, you know, more lit. That is the, the elder son. And now one seems a bit apprehensive to approach talking about the elder son. And we certainly see why in our reading today. Now, um, looking at Rembrandt's painting, now one says on page 64, I am more than ever convinced of what a enormous spiritual challenge this painting represents. Why, why would now one say something like that? I think the, the older son is somebody that, probably more people can identify with than the younger son, or maybe not more, but some of us, I guess, let's just say, can identify uh, uncomfortably so with the with the older son. And I think it's hard to put him in the picture. When you look at, I may, and maybe I'm just, I'm just processing as I'm looking at it, when I look at the younger son and you look at the tenderness between the father and the younger son, and then you think about well, where do you put the older son in the picture and how do you put him in there. I think it's a hard um, it's a hard thing to include him because, I mean, like even his posture, like his hands are clasped, he's looking down, he looks very reserved. You can almost like feel the tightness in his body of just standing there. And where is his welcome and how do you, how do you depict that? I don't know. I, I just, I think that's got to be, I think that would be hard thinking about how would I include him in this. But of course he has to be included. Yeah, and I think we've talked about our, if we were going to enter into the parable, okay, I'm okay with being the prodigal because I end up back in my father's house. Right. right. I, I receive the father's grace. I'm his beloved. Um, But I don't want to be identified as the elder son. Mm-mm. And uh, I think one of the big reasons is we don't really get an ending for him. The parable just kind of leaves off. Um, while he's alit in this image, uh, we know in the parable he's outside in the darkness. And uh, I, my guess is that we would be okay with hearing the parable kind of year in, year out in, in, in the life of the church, as long as the sermon is not about me being the elder son. Right. Yeah, we don't want to hear that version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's part of the 
the temerity that now it has as he approaches the elder son because he doesn't want to admit his elder son like qualities. If if you have to pick, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I think I think when you as we get into this uh, discussion, the sins of the older son and the, his his attitude and the way he presents in the story is. Uh, it feels convicting to me. It's painful because I think you can, not everybody can identify with someone who goes away from home and squanders all their money or whatever. But how many of us can't identify with the son who stays home and feels he's owed certain things? I think that that's just, most of us can uncomfortably connect with that in ways that are hard to own. Yeah, uh, just that sense of I feel owed something. Right. Um, and, you know, we display this when we uh, try to even like return an item at the store or customer service and, you know, I should get something out of this or, or the coupon or the discount or right. just, you know, we could just write the wrong, right? But no, I need something a little more than that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but there's just this, I don't know, is entitlement the word or I, I'm not sure. I think that could be a word. I think there's a lot of words you could use, uh, but I think entitlement does come into play. I mean, when you think about the inheritance and you think about later um, or the or the recognition that when the father gave what he gave to the younger son, he was, in essence, taking some away from what the older son could have had. So there is a sense of entitlement that that was mine or that should be mine or I'm owed that um, or culturally that this is how this works and you're breaking, you know, you're breaking the way this system works. Um which I think is is partially entitlement. Yeah, and I think uh, was it so Luke fifteen? You get a couple of the other parables preceding the prodigal. You get the lost sheep and the lost coin, and you get the celebration, right? The rejoicing, my sheep that was lost, right? I found it, and then you get the lost coin, and she calls a party of neighbors. I have lost, you know, what's obviously rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And in this parable, you get another lost object. You get the lost son, the prodigal, but you get a little bit further here of the one who's looking on and the one who stayed. And doesn't he deserve something? Um, and yet we find out he's, he's just as lost too. Now one also says uh, on page 66... At the very end of the chapter, it is clear that the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home. He makes the point before this that um, both of these sons are lost. Both need healing and forgiveness. Both need to come home. Both need the embrace of a forgiving father. Um, what makes this one the harder conversion? I think part of it is that his sins are... I mean, they both sin from like what's in their heart. You know, the the disordered loves, as uh, who was that? What's his name? James K. A. Smith would call it disordered loves. Um, so they're both sinning from that place. But thinking about the harder conversion, I think because the sins of the older son are like he's obedient. He's doing. He's doing on the surface, what appears he should be doing. And so I think that to see where is the sin in that 
is challenging for some of us. And then to think like, well, what does that mean for him? How is he sinning by staying home and serving his father and doing those things? But then seeing that obviously, uh, I think now and gets into it a bit more later, the undercurrent of why he's doing those things is because, you know, it's a, he thinks he's owed something. And so he's, he's sort of controlling the situation with his behavior. And I think that's just a harder thing to identify and then a harder thing to turn from. Yeah. I mean, he does not intimate at the beginning of the parable, Hey father, I want you to die. Right. So I get my inheritance. But what he intimates by the end of the parable, you realize he doesn't care about his father as much as his brother. Right. Or what his father is, is doing and bringing about anything else from chapter four. I don't think so. I mean, I think that was really, to me, that was really the big chunk is just recognizing that um, they both needed to come home and both needed the embrace of the forgiving father and just trying to reconcile that within the story and even within ourselves, just thinking about how does that hit us? You know, how does that hit me? Yeah. What do I make of that? Yeah. I mean, there is a, both sons ends up, end up leaving the house, mm-hmm. right? The younger to a distant country, the elder son, he goes out into the darkness, and he is not home either. And that takes us to chapter 5, which is the elder son leaves. Now one writes in the middle of 68, It is true that the return is the central event of the painting. However, it is not situated at the physical center of the canvas. It takes place at the left side of the painting, while the tall, stern elder son dominates the right side. And there is a large open space separating the father and his elder son. A space that creates a tension asking for resolution. You can even just see um, one of the figures in the background, like how his shadow is kind of creating a dividing line even on the ground. Um, you know, there is this boundary. You know, the son's face is still, you know, a light. And yet there is that distance to be resolved. Um, now one calls this parable, if you were to retitle it, the parable of the lost sons. And that, that was a question I was wondering for us of, um, why do we still call it the parable of the prodigal son? I, I've heard this more commonly. It's the parable of the lost sons. I even heard maybe it's the parable of the waiting father. I mean, all these titles we make up, right? As you know, Bible editors and put together our Bibles. But why do we so commonly just call it the prodigal son still? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it, I actually, I don't think it should be called that. I'm looking at my NIV translation, and they actually have it named the parable of the lost son in the NIV that I'm looking at. So I think... Singular son? Son, yeah, singular. Ah, should be sons, I know, they were close. They got close. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think I I would be curious the justification for that or how that came about. I don't know the history of that, but I think it definitely could stand to be renamed. Yeah, and so again, you know, our Bible headings are just editor's choices. Um, But I think it just goes back to this idea of, I think we're all okay with being the prodigal. If we have to be one of the sons, um, I don't, I don't want to be identified as the elder son. Right. And especially appears to have been a better son. Well, I don't, I don't want to think that person is lost because isn't that me? I'm in the church or, you know. Right. I think that's what makes his, his piece of this story so, tricky but then it, it reminds me that jesus is telling this story to the pharisees and so if there's any representation of the oldest son to me 
It is the Pharisees. It's the ones who are keeping the letter of the law, but their hearts are far from the Lord. And I think, you know, he's using this opportunity to speak to them. And I I would be curious how many of them realized that he was talking about them and how many of them just, it blew right past them and they were like, no, that's not me. Right. I mean, the critique at the beginning of the chapter from the Pharisees is, look, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Right. Uh, And they're not seeing that they are lost too. Mm Mm-hmm. And Jesus is sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to which they all belong, um, but lost in different ways. Now one starts to unpack some of uh, what that lostness looks like for the elder son, and he talks a fair bit about resentment starting in 69. Do you want to take us into that, Chris? Yeah, I really, uh, I really appreciated this section on resentment. He goes into a pretty hearty conversation about it, and I think that... Um, one of the the pieces on page 70, um, Nowen talks about his anger and envy uh, revealing his own bondage and thinking about how we can be in bondage to our resentment or our judgments or our condemnation of others or bitterness or jealousy. He talks about all of that. And I think that uh, I don't think we often think of the ways that that is a form of bondage for our hearts and our souls, but I think that it's a really important distinction to make to think about when we're engaging in these behaviors or when we're carrying these ideas around what is being eclipsed because of those things. And later he talks about the joy and was it joy and self-righteousness or joy and resentment can't coexist and just thinking about how that affects us and how it is a form of bondage. And then what do we do? How do we get out of that? He goes on to describe on, on 71, the lostness of the elder son, however, is much harder to identify. After all, he did all the right things. He was obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, hardworking. People respected him, admired him, praised him, and likely considered him a model son. Outwardly, the elder son was faultless, much like the Pharisees, right? But when confronted by his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly there becomes glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person, who one that had remained deeply hidden, even though it had been growing stronger and more powerful over the years. And then now one turns to himself, looking deeply into myself and then around me at the lives of other people. I wonder which does more damage, lust or resentment. There's so much resentment among the just and the righteous. There is so much judgment, condemnation, and prejudice among the saints. There is so much frozen anger among the people who are so concerned about avoiding sin. The lostness of the resentful saint is so hard to reach precisely because it is so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. I know from my own life how diligently I've tried to be good, acceptable, likable, and a worthy example for others. There was always a, the conscious effort to avoid the pitfalls of sin and the constant fear of giving in to temptation. But with all of that, there came a seriousness, a moralistic intensity, and even a touch of fanaticism that made it increasingly difficult to feel at home. In my father's house, I became less free, less spontaneous, less playful, and others came to see me more 
a more as a somewhat heavy person. I appreciate Nowen's uh, calling out what makes this lostness found through resentment really tough because it's so close to being good or virtuous. Right. And how quickly we will compare and compete. Um, and don't I have a right? <laughs> right. <laughs> kind, of, kind of idea or don't I deserve better than what's, what's happening? Look at what I have done. And immediately we see what's the issue of the of the elder son. Is he's no longer looking at his father. The elder son is just looking at himself and what he has done and has not done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's not that's not where the salvation is found, not in his doing, but in the father's doing. I find it fascinating that we constantly struggle to remember that what God is looking at is our hearts. I mean, he talks about that. The Psalms talk about it. Proverbs talk about it. There's lots of places in Scripture that talk about God is looking at the heart and the things that God requires of his people is for their hearts to be turned to him. And it's not that the outward behavior doesn't matter, but I feel like we constantly struggle to focus on the outward behavior and forget that the heart is really like the seat of where all of that comes from. And if we don't attend to where is our heart, then it doesn't even, I don't know if it, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter if we don't keep the letter of the law, but like we're focused on the wrong things. And then finding this so hard to turn from, to say like, oh, where's my heart? Like, is my heart connected to the Lord or am I just trying to make sure I check all of these boxes and do all of these things so that there's something to measure? Maybe that's it, that you can measure behavior and you can measure morality or these things where it's much harder to measure the content of someone's heart or how they're behaving from a heart perspective. Uh, we, we spoke previously about like the invocation in, in the worship service and how that grounds us, that that is our identity. We are God's beloved children even before we confess our sins. The invocation also comes before we sing and offer praise and prayers and make our own sacrifices to God in our worship. Our identity as God's children comes first. And uh, the elder son seems to be elevating, well, look at how I have, look at what I have done. Right. (laughs) Look what I have had to offer. And no, 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 know your place. Know that you are God's child first. And he determines that. And now we go about confessing our sins and then also yeah, living rightly before our Heavenly Father. Now, uh, the next section um, I want to complain about, but I can't because <laughs> it's about complaining. <laughs> what should we talk about here, Chris? I liked uh, down at the bottom of 72 where he says, um, of one thing I'm sure, complaining is self-perpetuating and counterproductive. Whenever I express my complaints in the hope of evoking pity, and receiving the satisfaction I so much desire, the result is always the opposite of what I tried to get. A complainer is hard to live with, and very few people know how to respond when the complaints made by to the re- complaints made by a self-rejecting person. Um, and he says the tragedy is that often the complaint, once expressed, leads to that which is most feared: further rejection. I just feel like, whoa, just to think about that. The the idea that complaining becomes this self-perpetuating uh, cycle that you can get into. And one complaint begets another complaint begets another complaint. And then you can get into a, 
a mode of like, how do you even stop complaining, you know, but to recognize that the, the damage that that's doing and how it leads to rejection, that the more we complain about things we feel, I think you feel, you can feel alienated from those you might be complaining to who maybe get tired of listening to your complaints, but then even just feeling self-rejection and feeling alienated from yourself and just, you don't even want to hear yourself complaining anymore because it's just, there. it's so empty. There's nothing, there's nothing to it. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't get better just by complaining. Yeah, it pushes you further away from the thing you see is not right. Right. Midway through 73, he says, joy and resentment cannot coexist. The music and dancing, instead of inviting to joy, become a cause for even greater withdrawal. Yeah, the elder son cannot stand the party. He can't stand the angels are rejoicing that what was lost is found. And so he heads away yeah. to the distant land of outside. Um, I just love this is not, it's sort of related, but I love that the journey that the older son takes away, even if you look at the painting, which is symbolic of that, is a very short distance. He moves, he moves outside in a way, but he doesn't go anywhere which I think is, you know, that's the point, is that he's there the whole time. He doesn't go anywhere. But I love the idea that he travels in many ways just as far as his brother without moving at all, hardly. Yeah, I, I like that. He's, what can we say, Just he's just as far spiritually mm-hmm. from the love of his father, right, as right. his younger brother was. And yeah, uh, and uh, and in both cases, you know, the father runs out to greet his younger son, and the father also goes out to his older son. And so we see who does the searching for whom. I forget who wrote it, but there's, you know, the description of, you know, uh, Christ being like this hound of heaven. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, the bloodhound that sniffs us out and tracks us down and brings us in. Yeah, I love that. It's a poem. I love that poem. I forget who wrote it, though. Bottom of 74, now one writes... I am left alone with these questions, just as I do not know how the younger son accepted the celebration or how he lived with his father after his return. I also do not know whether the elder son ever reconciled himself with his brother, his father, or himself. What I do know with unwavering certainty is the heart of the father. It is a heart of limitless mercy. I think this goes back to some of our parable titles. Is it prodigal son? Is it the lost sons? And I've also heard suggested the parable of the waiting father. Or maybe even just along the lines of, you know, uh, a parable of the certainty of a father's heart, you know, if, to take Nowen's words. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, I think one of the challenges of this parable and why we don't like thinking of ourselves as elder sons is it is left incomplete. Mm-hmm. Right. He, the parable ends in darkness. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get to know really whether or not the older son finally came inside and decided to celebrate or if he just stood out there complaining to himself. Uh, 75, uh, next section. Unlike a fairy tale, the parable provides no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face to face with one's uh, one of life's hardest spiritual choices. To trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love. Uh, some more honesty from now in the uh, next full paragraph on 75. He says, The more I reflect on the elder son in me, the more I realize how deeply rooted this form of lostness really is, 
how hard it is to return home from there. Returning home from a lustful escapade seems so much easier than returning home from a cold anger that has rooted itself in the deepest corners of my being. My resentment is not something that can be easily distinguished and dealt with rationally. Top of 76, it seems that wherever my virtuous self is, there is also a resentful complainer. Well, I like that he goes on to say that there he's faced with his own true poverty, that he's totally unable to root out his resentments, that they're deeply anchored in the soil of his inner self and pulling them out seems like self-destruction. I, I, I mean, I think if anybody can be honest with themselves, I know I could say I've definitely lived seasons like that where feeling like, how do I get this out? How do I stop doing this? It doesn't, it doesn't feel like I have the capability to root out those things in my own power. Because I, some of that's default mode. You know, you just slip into these patterns of behavior and you think, how do I change this? How do I stop doing this? Which I just appreciate that um, now and points that out, that it's, that it's a form of poverty, like a soul poverty. And I think, you know, you could look at the, you look at the younger son and you see him come back with, you know, he has no money. He's lost everything that he had. And when he left, he was not in, uh, you know, poverty in the way that we would, we would picture it. He comes home, but he isn't as impoverished as he seems. He actually, even though he has nothing physical, he is, there's a wealth there that is being returned to him by his, by his own return. Yeah. And, and what does the, the elder son do? He removes himself from the house, from the property, from all that is his. Right. You know, the father says, all this is yours. Right. And his resentment is actually like he's plundering himself or dispossessing right. his inheritance from himself um, because that's the, the the spiritual condition of this elder son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I love the way this parable takes all of these concepts and sort of turns them inside out, the concept of poverty and the concept of who has and who hasn't and who's, who's welcome and how that looks, all of these things, I think, are kind of, you're kind of forced to hold them out and look at them in a completely different way as you consider what Jesus is saying about who we are and who he is and how we can connect with him. And I think it's, it's really amazing how much is going on in a story that you could look at that could look very simple on the surface. And then you realize, like, oh my goodness, no, there's a lot. Sometimes I've wondered, and you'll notice in the narthex we've had that print of Rembrandt's. You know, we have we have a printed, framed poster, right? <laughs> so not on the back of a door, but uh, it's it's there in the narthex of the Rembrandt piece. But there's also another piece by Ed Riojas. Uh, he's done some of the other artwork we have hanging around the church from time to time. Um, I didn't do a whole ton of searching, and partly because it became pretty annoying pretty quickly. Is how do you find? artwork of just the older son i was wondering if maybe an artist had taken a, a stab at it chris but no everything is keyed to prodigal son for key, for keyword search and it just uh um and so i wondered if i was an artist how would i portray just the elder son and um let me kind of throw this your way and see what you think i imagine like a very up close picture maybe even just like a sort of headshot of the person um, so there's darkness. You can barely kind of make out the face, but you kind of, his, his eyes are like, you can actually see the eyes kind of thing. 
Um, and so I'd be really interested to see like, how do you show like uh, resentment or disgust or whatever the, the look of the mm -hmm. son is, whether he's just out there before his father talks to him or it's after his father talks to him. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then maybe just off to the side, like kind of pouring in from the edge of the frame is just a little bit of glowing light mm. or like the edge of like a window of the house or, mm -hmm. um, and I would almost like for the image to be us kind of eye level looking into a mirror into, and we see in his eyes ourselves mm -hmm. and our resentment, our complaining, our, I, I want to find that piece of art. Yeah. Um, um, Cause I'm going to tell you, I'm not drawing it. I, I, I can't saying, do well, that. Maybe you have to paint it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I like that idea. I mean, as I think about it, I think, how would you depict someone who has everything and yet feels empty? Because that's what I feel like you see in the older son. He has everything. Everything is his. That's what, the, that's what his father says. That's what God is saying. Everything is yours. You have it. And yet he feels empty. So how do you, how do you depict that? I don't know. You kind of the eyes have an emptiness. Yeah. yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Somebody take that on. We'll commission it. Yeah, that's right. All right. So let's head into chapter six, the elder son return. Interesting the title because he doesn't really come back, or at least <laughs> we don't see it in the parable. Uh, now on right to the beginning, the elder son too needs to be found and led back into, I like this, into the house of joy. Mm. Not the house of complaining, the house of joy. Uh, now one talks about in the chapter, uh, one of the commentators is a uh, Fitzmaier, uh, leans into the Greek word, it's uh, technon, which is a uh, child or my son. I mean, it's meant to be more endearing. It's not necessarily chiding or um, your little kid, um, but just the, the tone of the father's voice. You know, my son, child. Or, uh, there's um, the father's actually trying to bring both his sons home back into the house of joy. I love that phrase, the house of joy. Just thinking about that. And thinking about what does that mean and what does that look like, a house of joy? And isn't that what we're called to? And isn't isn't in so many ways Jesus himself the house of joy, you know, that we can enter into him, into his presence with joy regardless of circumstances? I just, I really like that phrase, the house of joy. Uh, something I'm going to throw in the show notes is uh, a link to a YouTube video. A few years ago, we we showed this sermon in a few different ways around here, and so I thought not to include it in the episode. But it's a it's a pastor who does like a like a contemporary rendition of the parable. Uh, his name is Mike Ziegler. He's actually the the Lutheran Hour speaker now. Um, at the time, he was over at a at a congregation, and he retells the story from the perspective of the older son, but doesn't in a modern sort of take of like an Italian family owning some restaurants in New York. And uh, what I like about this parable is, A, it's from the older son's perspective, how he goes about proclaiming Christ in the parable. And so you, have, you know, watch the video to see this. Um, but it, it ends with that sort of idea of the older son's in darkness. What's next? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I really appreciate that. So it's by Mike Ziegler. Um, in his rendition of the prodigal son, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. What else do you want to talk about here in this chapter? I love, there's a quote on page 78. There's a little chunk there um, that I really like that um, 
where Nouwen writes, The Father's love does not force itself on the Beloved. Although He wants to heal us all of our inner darkness, we are still free to make our own choices, to stay in the darkness, or to step into the light of God's love. God is there. God's light is there. God's forgiveness is there. God's boundless love is there. What is so clear is that God is always there, always ready to give and forgive, absolutely independent of our response. God's love does not depend on our repentance or our inner or outer changes. Whether I am the younger son or the elder son, God's only desire is to bring me home. I just love that reminder so much that it's God, God is doing the work. God is doing the action. And it doesn't depend on me to do anything, to do anything a certain way or a better way or any of that. That God isn't waiting for me to sort of figure out how to do this. God is acting. And I just, that, I think that's such a good reminder. Um, I think as we continue through the chapter, I really like the middle of 84. Again, more honesty from now on. He says, there is a very strong, dark voice in me. That says the opposite. God isn't really interested in me. He prefers the repentant sinner who comes home after his wild escapades. He doesn't pay attention to me who has never left the house. He takes me for granted. I am not his favorite son. I don't expect him to give me what I really want. At times this dark voice is so strong that I need enormous spiritual energy to trust that the father wants me home as much as he does the younger son. It requires a real discipline to step over my chronic complaint and to think, speak, and act with the conviction that I am being sought and will be found. Without such discipline, I become prey to self-perpetuating hopelessness. I think also um, something that's interesting to bring up in the parable is how do you find out about the younger son's living and what he does, you know, with the father's inheritance. Um, just to draw our attention, let me see here, um, looking at the parable. Verse 13, uh, after he takes the inheritance, not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Okay. What does that mean? And there's, you know, a lot of thought and discussion on what that means and doesn't mean. But the only other commentary you get in the parable about this is outside, older son with father. And you get this language of, uh, he says, but as soon as, verse 30, the older son, but as soon as the son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. So often we, we hear the elder son here and we just take his accusation at face value um, and his interpretation of what's going on. And it, it, it's interesting that like we kind of ally ourselves so often with the elder son. And I think that's why we call it the prodigal son is the parable and the focus on that. Um, again, there's a, that misdirection and that complaint and resentment and all that even kind of, I don't know, hoodwinks our reading of the scripture too. Mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah. It's just a thought that I've kind of wrestled with lately. Well, I wonder if, you know, there's some measure of envy in the older son that he's speaking out of this envy of like, he got to go off and do all these things, whatever he wanted to. And he comes home, everything is handed back to him essentially. And I've been here doing all these things, you know, not getting to sow my oats or whatever, you know, and 
how is that fair? You know, and there's, I wonder if there's not some envy that, that he feels and that how is he getting sort of, it reminds me, and I think we talked about this earlier before we were recording about the, um, the message about the talent, the, um, the guys in the vineyard, the people working in the vineyard and how some of them work, you know, only a couple hours and some of them work all day, but then everybody gets paid, you know, and there's this sense of like, if I don't, if I'd known, I would have just shown up for the last hour. Right. You know? Yeah. And what's the line? Uh, they're begrudging the master's generation. You have made them equal to us. Yeah. Who have borne the burden of the day. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which gets into the whole idea of how, as God's people, we want to understand God's version of fairness and how we just can't, we can't wrap our minds around how God chooses to show his love and his generosity to people when we are so entrenched in our culture that measures these things differently and having to, to set that aside and recognize that God does not work that way. That isn't, that's his, that's not his economy. That's a, that's a different thing. And how hard that is for us to pull ourselves out of this world that we live in that functions like this and say, wait, but God's economy works differently. It's just a challenge. I think this also just speaks into a general sense of we think as Christians, like there was like a conversion for us. A lot of us will just say when you're baptized, that's when you became a Christian. Others of us came to the faith later in life. And like, that's the moment when I came to faith, but there is this ongoing converting work within our lives. And whether as younger sons or older sons, uh, we flee from the father's presence in an ongoing way. This is why we are so adamant of, of preaching the gospel incessantly and not just treating way back when that's when I became a Christian. It's we are always <laughs> dying right. to self right. and being raised to Christ. We are always being made more and more into conformity to who Jesus is and that, that gratitude to hear the gospel and not resent it. Right. Um, it took me a long time to kind of get this point and I'm still getting it. Um, I remember like when I was in confirmation, filling out my version of sermon notes at my home church, and I would get annoyed of like, why am I always talking about Jesus dying on the cross? Like, I've already heard this. I already know this. Mm-hmm. And yet not to hear like, no, I, I need this again and again mm-hmm. and again. And, and all of a sudden I'm, I was resenting right. the gospel itself. Right. right? And that's, that's what's so insidious about this. Yeah. Well, I think God's people have a history. When you read back through Old Testament and you look at the the times where God was specifically speaking to his people about their practices or about their worship or about the way they were moving through the world and doing the things or not doing the things that he had asked them to do. And there's this, you can see it building this contempt for God and this, this sense of like, they know, they know what he's asking of them, but they don't want to do it. And there's this rejection of it. And I, I always think of the term like familiarity breeds contempt. Like they're so familiar with the ways and works of God. And yet there's this resistance of like, we, we are tired of this. We don't want to do this your way. And how does that look? You know, when you kind of consider the prodigal son and thinking about this, this contempt that this older son has for the choices his father's making, the choices his brother's making, you know, he's just, he's all tangled up in that. And I just think that's, that's our history as people. That's yeah. our history. Yeah, I think of the, the book of Jonah. You know, why does he flee and not go to Nineveh? 
you finally get the answer at the end in chapter four or uh, chapter three when God relents of destroying Nineveh. You know, he, he forgives them. Chapter four, Jonah's ticked and he get this, I knew, I knew you were gracious and merciful and slow to anger. He's, he is angry yeah. at the mercy of God. Yeah, it sounds crazy when you say it. You're like, this is, how can this be? But and, it, and it's Jonah who's the Lord's prophet, right? right? Who's supposed to bring the word of God and law and gospel and all this, and yet hates it. Yeah. And then the book ends without an ending, right? God asks a question of Jonah, like the father asking his elder son, should I not have mercy? Oh, I love that parallel. Just to think that like Jonah's kind of left out there too. What does he do? Does he Does he decide that... Oh yeah, God's way is better. <laughs> or does he sit in his, you know, his frustration and his anger and just do about it and feel like that wasn't how he wanted it to play out? Yeah, it's crazy. That's that's such a um it sounds absurd when you say it out loud, but then you think, yeah, this is how we this is how we are. Now, uh we're coming to the end of this uh part 2 of the book. And now one makes his move again. Just as he locates Jesus in the prodigal last episode, he's also going to find Christ in the elder son. He does this by recalling things like the parable of the wicked tenants, where you have this vineyard, uh, the vineyard owner goes away, and he starts sending prophets and messengers right to collect the harvest, and the, the tenants all just mistreat them, and finally he sends his beloved son. He sends the heir, and they kill him. Jesus says this parable directed towards people like the Pharisees, and they knew that he was talking about them. Jesus says the parable of the prodigal son and of the elder son and of the waiting father to a group of Pharisees. And there's a there's a disjunct between the between them. The Pharisees are going to mistreat this Christ. They are going to take the air and kill him. The resentment that's there. And I, I appreciate, you know, now in, kind of looking for Jesus in this way. What, what kind of stands out to you with it? I think um, the idea at the bottom of 87 where he says, thus Jesus is the elder son of the father. He is sent uh, by the father to reveal God's unremitting love for all his resentful children and to offer himself as the way home. Just thinking about um, even Jesus as the elder son, that is often not how... This parable is preached either, where Jesus is in that role. And so just that Nowen would take that take that idea and kind of flesh that out a little bit is interesting and it causes you to kind of just look at this a little a little differently. I think of the Lenten hymn, this is number four hundred thirty-eight, uh, titled A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth. Uh well, yes, is a Gerhard hymn. He says uh, a lamb goes uncomplaining forth the guilt of sinners bearing and laden with the sins of earth, none else the burden sharing goes patient on, grows weak and faint to slaughter led without complaint. That spotless life to offer. He bears the stripes, the wounds, the lies, the mockery, and yet replies. Finally, he speaks, right? All this I gladly suffer. Um, Next verse, this lamb is Christ, the soul's great friend. The lamb of God, our Savior, whom God the Father chose to send to gain for us his favor. Go forth, my son, the Father said, and free my children from
from their dread of guilt and condemnation. The wrath and stripes are hard to bear, but by your passion they will share the fruit of your salvation. Verse 3 begins with quotation marks. You get Jesus' response. Yes, Father, yes, most willingly I'll bear what you command, what you command me. My will conforms to your decree. I'll do what you have asked of me. O wondrous love, what have you done? The Father offers up his Son, desiring our salvation. O love, how strong you are to save. You lay the one into the grave who built the earth's foundation. Final verse. Lord, when my, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure, your blood my royal robe shall be, my joy beyond all measure. When I appear before your throne, your righteousness shall be my crown. With these I need not hide me, and there in garments richly wrought is your own bride shall we be brought to stand in joy beside you. I love this hymn, not just because it doesn't, it says, you know, Jesus goes forth uncomplaining and ties in with our reading, <laughs> but I love the dialogue of the Father to the Son. I, son, it's time, time to do this. Yeah. We have a faithless son in the elder son in the parable. Jesus is the faithful son who will go and do the Father's will. And we all benefit. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Chris. What else? Besides asking people how would they retitle the prodigal son, uh, is there anything else we should think about as a sort of big question coming out of uh, this part of the book? I think the question that comes for me is just thinking about um, on page 85 now and says there's always a choice between resentment and gratitude. And um, thinking about what choice am I making today, tomorrow, every day? What choice am I making between resentment or gratitude? And am I willing to make the choice for gratitude even in the face of maybe leaning towards resentment? I think just just holding that question before ourselves every day. Like, what choice will I make between those two? I'll phrase this as a question, too. If you have a social media account, would you go through your history and delete all the times you complain? I think maybe one more question that now one's asking throughout this section is, yeah, we probably are more comfortable identifying ourselves as the prodigal, but will you find yourself more willing to identify yourself as the elder brother who needs the forgiveness of God just as much? Um, the longer we are in the church as Christians, the more likely we fall into an elder brother sort of status yeah. and way of thinking. And that's an insidious sort of danger there. Yeah. That you can be so close to the father and yet spiritually far still in the darkness. All right. Uh, what else? So for next time, we're going to be through part three, where we deal with the chapters about the father. It says chapters seven, eight, and nine. And to close out, I have a prayer for us. And it is a prayer for one battling a destructive desire. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to indulge in it, would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. O Christ, rather let my life be thine. Take my desires. Let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment I might choose 
to indulge a fleeting hunger, or I might choose to love you more. Faced with this temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak, so be my strength. I am shadowed, be my light. I am selfish, unmake me now and refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you. Knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace I long for, no lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart, let me build then my king, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end, will become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity. And unto your welcoming arms, and unto the sound of your voice, pronouncing the judgment. Well done. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. All right. We'll see you all for our next episode. That'll come out Sunday, Lent 4. We'll deal with chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9. We'll see you all then. Bye. Bye.